Well, dear friends, if you would, take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 1. If you want to use the chair Bible, which you'll find underneath you, it's on page 807. Matthew chapter 1, a very familiar text to us, and we are looking together at verses 18 to 25. Before I read this passage, let us pray together. Father in heaven, you are a God who has been pleased to reveal yourself and to record that revelation in the Scripture preserved by the Spirit. And Lord, we pray that the same Spirit who authored the Word would also help us understand the Word. Draw near to us, O Lord, and sanctify us by your truth. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able, would you stand for the reading of the Word of the Lord? Again, Matthew 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus." for He will save His people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call His name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Well, this is God's holy word, and may he bless it to us. Brethren, please be seated. It's often said that Christmas is a season of hope, of light, of joy, and peace. And yet, many today, while espousing such a perspective on Christmas, just make it sentimental devoid of any real substance. They talk of things like, tell me if you've heard this before, the magic of Christmas. Or they'll describe the good feelings they have within themselves. Now evidently, those people weren't thinking about the traffic on the roads or the crowds at the stores fighting to get the latest have-to-have gift and the hustle and bustle to get all the presents all wrapped to show up at all the various places where we're supposed to be. The so-called peace of Christmas can quickly flip into a time of stress, just wanting it to be over. Maybe those dealing with that issue don't sentimentalize Christmas, but the true blessing to which this time in our culture is connected is missed. What exactly is it that brings peace? Not the warm fuzzies of sentimental souls, or even the solace to stressed out folks. 
I tell you, brethren, it's not a feeling, and it's not even a day on our calendar that we've marked and called it Christmas. What brings peace, hope, joy, and light is a historical truth of monumental significance. The arrival of the enfleshed God, our Savior Jesus Christ. And I want to turn us back this morning to the days of preparation when God prepared a place for the Savior. When He prepared a people who were to raise Him. When He told us about that mission that He would achieve and then brought about His birth. We're going to reflect on four things in our text. And first I want you to see with me, miracle in verse 18. Miracle. Now, Matthew has started his Gospel in a strange way to us with a genealogical record. We didn't read it, and you probably think, thank you. We find these things to be boring, cumbersome with these strange names we don't know how to pronounce, and we often just skip them. But Matthew wants you to understand right at the outset that what God is doing in the coming of the Savior is not a totally new thing. The arrival of the Christ, the Messiah, the word just mentioned in verse 17 prior to our passage, it links back to all of God's promises from Abraham to David to David through the prophets of the exile right down to the days of, of, of a man in the line of David whose name was Joseph. The Bible has been anticipating the coming of a king in Abraham's and David's line. But while Matthew's account begins here from Joseph's perspective, it doesn't actually start with him. Matthew wants to introduce us into how the Savior, Jesus, who is the Christ, arrived. What was his earthly origin? Well, the genealogy started that exploration, but now we go deeper in our text. And to look at it, we must begin with Joseph's betrothed Mary. Now, it was common in this culture, first century Judaism, for a self-sustaining man, likely through family connections, to be betrothed to a young gal, and she would be something like 12 or 13 years old. And you're thinking, that's really young. Yes, it is, but it's a different culture. Now, this betrothal is not the same thing as engagement in our culture. It's actually more binding It was a legal act to become betrothed, which required a further legal act to break the betrothal. More on that shortly. And in this culture, the prospective couple before witnesses would pledge themselves to one another that they would be married. However, the young lady would stay at home and it would be another year or so. And then Joseph would come to her home with a bridal party a festal procession, and then they would celebrate a wedding banquet, and then he would take her to his home to be his wife. Now, during this season of betrothal, verse 18 makes it clear that the two, Joseph and Mary, had not come together. There had been no sexual relations. Therefore, when Mary is found to be with child, that creates a huge problem for Joseph. Now, We have the reader's edge. We get the scoop before Joseph knows. Namely, we learn that the child in Mary's womb is from the Holy Spirit. 
In other words, just as the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the waters at the beginning, Genesis 1-2, and brought things to life, so here, the Spirit of God is the agent of life within Mary. Without male involvement, the Spirit of God miraculously made life in Mary's womb. Now, we often talk about a virgin birth, but really, the emphasis is on a virginal conception. Suspending the process of ordinary conception, the Spirit took initiative to shape the body and soul of the Savior. To unite the Divine Son, the second person of the Trinity, with flesh and blood of true human substance. What an incredible mystery this is. God Almighty taking action by the Spirit to invade our world, we might say. Because you see, all man has ever produced by his will, by the actions of our flesh, is another sinner. We've seen the great men throughout history in God's people. Abraham, Moses, David, and the like. But every one of them is tainted with the corruption of sin. So how would they be the means to rescue us from our problem, our fallenness, our native corruption, the sin that separates us from God? All man has the power to do is to carry on in sin. We can't rise out of it. Therefore, in ourselves, we are confined to bondage, which leads to death. But the conception of Jesus in Mary's womb is an action of stupendous grace. The human race needs a Redeemer. And with all of our ingenuity and all of our education and all of our ambitions, we have no ability to produce that Redeemer because sin grips us. Yet God intervenes. It's a miracle. We could never ascend to Him. So He descends to us. From the outside, we might say, The Lord steps in. The eternal Son of God who had glory with the Father before the world began, He stoops to take flesh and to be in that flesh confined to a tiny womb. Again, how mind-boggling is this? The very God who sustains the world with His Word is without power even to utter a word. The One who fills all space because He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable is now limited in His flesh to the uterine wall of Mary. He who had no beginning is united with a created thing. These are thoughts that are beyond our comprehension. Yet, with the Spirit's activity overshadowing Mary, we have here a new beginning. And this new beginning is not man achieving or man creating or man evidencing his power. We love to talk about how great man is to rise from the ashes and do something. No, it's not even man begetting man. Man begetting another sinner as Adam did in Genesis 5 when Adam had a son in his likeness. And then that is a genealogy too. And it goes like this. And he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. It's rather God intervening into man's plight. It's God of His initiative bringing a new or second Adam. And since the Spirit of God unites the Divine Son to flesh, the Spirit purifies the flesh that He creates and the Son assumes. Indeed, the emphasis falling here is on the Spirit's work. 
the very Spirit who made all things good at the beginning. And it would be unthinkable that any, any sinfulness would adhere to the humanity of the Christ. He is parallel to the first man, Adam, who was also made in a unique way so that the original guilt of man flowing through the stream of Adam is not found in this child. Because the child doesn't come from below, we might say. He comes from above. Now brethren, all of this ought to leave us truly standing in awe. It takes us out of our depths. And yet, if we stumble here at the entrance to the Gospel, shall we even keep reading? If we can't embrace a conception by divine power and the preservation of purity in the Son of God who is truly God and truly man, how shall we go on to believe that Jesus multiplied bread and fish to feed 5,000? How shall we go on to believe that Jesus opened the eyes of the blind or told a storm to stop, and it did? Or that Jesus raised the dead or Himself was raised from the dead? This miracle stands at the outset of the Gospel to confront our lack of understanding and it bids us to submit ourselves to God's greater glory. It says, Behold, see the kindness of God who moves supernaturally that He might bring about the salvation of sinners. Without this divine miracle, we are lost. While man often talks about hope and about change, and about redemption, and I'm not giving a political speech, but that's often how they go, there's only one who can effectively bring those things. And it's the one who has come. Praise the Lord that the Son of God did not abhor the virgin's womb. But secondly, see with me mercy. Not just miracle, but mercy. Now, we've been told about this miracle of the Spirit of Mary's womb, but at this point, Joseph has no knowledge of it. What he knows is that his betrothed has a baby bump. They were legally connected to one another, promised to one another, but they didn't live together. There was nothing untoward in their relationship with one another. And then Mary left for a season to go be with her cousin, Elizabeth, you can read about that in Luke chapter 1. We get no information about a conversation that Mary has with Joseph before she left. While the angel Gabriel had appeared to Mary and told her of the Spirit's overshadowing activity and how she would miraculously conceive a child and the child would be the Son of God in David's line in fulfillment of all of God's promises, Joseph has no idea. Now, surely the news to this young girl, Mary, was overwhelming. Mary was submissive. She was willing to be the servant of God, even to be the mother of God. But she was in a state of perplexity. Gabriel reveals that he had also um, intervened, we might say, to bring about a blessing to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Elizabeth is in her Six month. This is the cousin of Mary who's going to bear John who will be going before Jesus. So for comfort and solidarity, Mary goes to her cousin Elizabeth. And then we presume some three to four months later, Mary comes back to Nazareth and the proof of her pregnancy is right there for everyone to see. 
And Joseph doesn't know. One can only imagine how Joseph thought about the situation. He sees Mary. He knows he hasn't been with her. And yet, she's with child. Was Mary not the girl he thought that she was? He's disappointed. He's angry. He's grieved. He probably feels like a thousand daggers have been plunged into his heart because the girl he loves, it appears, has been unfaithful to him. Now, that isn't the case, we know. But what was Mary to say? You ever thought about this? An angel of the Lord appeared to me and said the Holy Spirit would come upon me and create life in my womb. Do you realize how that would sound? Now, some of us think, oh, well, this is the first century. Supernatural things are happening all the time. No, they weren't. God hadn't spoken through a prophet in 400 years. And besides the angel appearing to Zechariah in the temple, an angel hadn't appeared in 520 years, roughly. It's been a long time since the Lord had done anything miraculous. Mary would have sounded crazy to say these things. So she stays silent. She entrusts herself to the Lord. And Joseph is left trying to figure out what in the world to do. Now, the law gave him options. He could subject Mary to public humiliation by instituting a lawsuit against her for divorce. In the days prior to Roman occupation, back when Moses had delivered the law and the penalties of the, the law were carried out, her apparent crime demands stoning. And though she wouldn't have been stoned in this season, still he could have been very forceful to publicly shame her. But the law also permitted a private divorce without involving a judicial proceeding when unfaithfulness was suspected. Numbers 5 mentions that. It was a way to handle things quietly. And that's what Joseph determined to do. You see it in verse 19. Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now you might wonder, and I certainly do, why did the Lord leave Joseph in suspense and ruminating on divorce? Why didn't He just tell Joseph at the outset, or at least tell Joseph right before Mary came back? Well, here's the brilliant answer. I don't know. But as with any trial in our lives, and this is no doubt a trial, the Lord used this trial to test Joseph's character. What kind of man was he? How would he respond to the difficulty? Is he a man who shows his righteousness with teeth, holier than thou, eager to see every sinner get severity, ready to mark out the flaws in another person? Will he use the law to vent his spleen, to spew venom at Mary? Will he throw away all self-control and act with haste to scrutinize and condemn her? Or will he wrestle over what to do, no doubt earnestly seeking God? Will he seek a way to show mercy as justice is done? Will his righteousness be touched with compassion? And that's exactly what we see. As a just man, not in spite of being just. Verse 19 tells us he's just and he's also compassionate. 
Because He's righteous, which warrants tenderness, compassion, and mercy, He no doubt still loving her determines to act in a way that would mitigate her shame. Now dear friends, we should stop and see the mercy shown here by Joseph. Indeed, we should recognize the wisdom of waiting, of contemplating before acting. Is that how we act? When offended, do we stop? Do we ponder? Do we ask the Lord what would honor Him? Do we refuse to fly off the handle? Do we have righteousness that's touched with mercy? This will be something Jesus stresses in His ministry. <clears throat> the religious leadership in Jerusalem miss this very thing. And Jesus will tell them they need to go and learn God requires mercy and not sacrifice. Now, that doesn't mean the Lord wants people to ignore His law as long as they're nice. Did you all know that the word nice is never in the Bible? That's a sermon for a different day. The Lord doesn't want us to ignore His law because we're being nice. The idea here of justice and mercy going together means in our law-keeping, there must be compassion towards others. You know, it's interesting that our Heavenly Father chose to give Jesus an earthly Father who is righteous and merciful, who cared about the stipulations of the law and cared about people who loved God and loved others. A second aspect of mercy here. As Joseph determined to evidence a righteous compassion, the Lord was merciful to Joseph. His patience, probably fueled by prayer, bore fruit. Verse 20, an angel appears to him and says, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The word behold is an attention-getting word in the sense here is, while Joseph is agonizing over this decision, what happened? God mercifully came with direction. Now, there's no promise here in this text to us that when we don't know what to do and we're contemplating an action as to what will please the Lord in our perplexity, God will send an angel to direct us. No, but there is a biblical principle that when we lack wisdom, we can pray to God. And He's generous. He's the giving God who will lavish wisdom upon us. He will lead us with His Word if we seek Him. And beloved, that is a great mercy. And this mercy should be seen in Joseph's life. He doesn't want to divorce Mary. He doesn't want to have to do that. This woman, though, he finds out, is who he thought she was. She is pure and honorable and godly. She hasn't done anything wrong. In fact, she's been given an incredible blessing. She's been chosen of all the young gals in the Jewish world to bear the very Son of God. What an incredible thing. And Joseph, being instructed now in what has happened, how the Spirit of God has worked in Mary to create life, is to stand by her, support her, help her, take her into His care. In other words, He is to keep showing her mercy. And mercy would be required as whispers of infidelity may well have sprung up, as criticisms would have been uttered, 
he must not be afraid to endure this blessing, which is also a trial standing with her. You know, we rarely consider the tender care of Joseph, of his faithfulness to show Mary mercy, but it's worth pondering. Indeed, such will be his care that you remember that when a census demands that Joseph return to his family region all the way to Bethlehem, he would not dare go without taking Mary with him. Yes, a donkey ride will be extremely uncomfortable for a very pregnant woman. Don't they know a pregnant lady shouldn't travel at the end of her pregnancy? And yet he won't leave her. He shows mercy to her, even as the Lord had showed mercy to Mary. Maybe husbands are something for us to learn about mercy to our wives in any and all circumstances. Well, third, we see with me mission and messianic identity. The angel has more information for Joseph, and it pertains first to the mission and then the identity of this child. He says first, verse 21, that Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, Joseph is told here to give the boy a name, which is the action of a father in this culture. That means Joseph will accept the child as his own. He isn't the father, but he will raise this child, adopting him into his family. He will confer all the rights of sonship in his house, the very house of David, to this child. And this child raised in the house of David is given this significant name, Jesus, as the Greek equivalent of the word Joshua, which means Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh saves. Now, it's highly probable that there were a lot of little Joshuas, or Yeshuas as they would say, running around in the first century, but the name to this child is tied to a mission. He will save His people from their sins. I want to point out a few things about this declaration. First, the mission of this son of David is not to rescue Israel from Gentile enemies like the Romans. That's what many of the Jews are expecting. He has not come to lead a Joshua-like crusade to strike down the pagans. The great problem threatening God's people is not a foreign power. It's their own sin. And as the Lord formerly said through Isaiah, it is your sin, your iniquities that have made a separation between your God and you. Sin is the power dragging the people down to destruction. And what must be dealt with decisively. <clears throat> In fact, when we read the history of Israel from the Exodus to the wilderness, through the days of the judges, to the kings and the prophets, what do we keep seeing? Sin. Prevailing, persistent sin always sticks to the people. Sin is why the kings failed. Sin is why the people were exiled and the temple destroyed. <clears throat> sin is why they keep having to make sacrifices. However, the Lord spoke of a day when there will be a fountain opened for sin and uncleanness. And here it is. The people need a Savior from the thing that plagues them and they have no power to do it. But the angel's telling Joseph, this, this child <coughs> who is one of you, yet clearly different from you, he isn't tainted with Adamic sin and he has the power to bring real and lasting deliverance. 
Further notice that Jesus will save His people from their sins. You know, so often when the topic of sin comes up, it's a real taboo subject in our lives. You know that, right? When we talk about sin. Here we are, Christmas morning, we're having to talk about sin. Everything to do with Jesus coming, brethren, is about sin. But usually when we talk about it, it's a discussion about someone else's sin. Can you believe what she said to me? Do you, did you see what that guy did, how he cut me off? Now, we'll all say, look, I know nobody's perfect. But the microscope will fall on someone else's crimes. But here the emphasis is that Jesus will save His people from their sins. What's being stressed is not that we're rescued from sins done to us. No, we're saved from ourselves. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are guilty. We have offended the Father. We have done evil in His sight. Both committing sins of what we would call sins of commission and sins of omission, the things left undone. And as sinners, what do we deserve? The wrath and curse of God. But Jesus has come to save us from the curse. There's a famous story about the English writer and philosopher G.K. Chesterton. Supposedly, the Times, and this is in London, they sent out an inquiry to famous authors asking this question, what's wrong with the world today? Chesterton responded simply with this, Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. Is that how you see it? What's wrong with the world today? Oh, I could get you really stirred up if I ask you that question. But would you have the humility to say, me? It's my sin. That's the problem. My sin alienates me from God. My sin brings me into destruction. All I have are guilty stains. But here, beloved, Jesus has come to save. Not the righteous, because no one is in that category. He's come to save sinners. And then see the identity of the Savior mentioned. You shall call His name Jesus, for literally He Himself will save His people from their sins. Who can save from sin? <clears throat> oh, no mere man. We've got the whole Bible up to this point to see that. And the scribes and Pharisees will know this to be the case when they get very upset when Jesus proclaims forgiveness to this paralytic guy lowered down through the roof. They start grumbling about Jesus' audacity. How dare He say He can forgive sin? Only God can do that. Well, that's who Jesus is. He shares true humanity, but He's God in the flesh. And that's stressed by the phrase, He will save His people. You ever notice that? His people is not simply an ethnic connection because the genealogy previously was a remarkable genealogy. It's pretty unique in the Bible. Multiple women were in it, and that's not normal. And Gentile women at that. But the Gentiles are being included as part of God's people. And indeed, Jesus comes to save His people from their sin. Not simply those associated with Him, but those who belong to Him as God. He is the Lord in the flesh with a power to rescue His people. Not all people. His people. The people set apart for Himself. Those given to Him by the Father. 
And who could dare say that the Christ will fail in this mission? He will not make salvation possible for His people. He will save His people. And that begs a question. Who are His people? Well, you could say, well, is His elect? Well, yes, but how do we know His elect? It's those who in their sins call on His name. It's those who come to Christ. It's those who believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior. It's those who put their trust, not in their strength, not in their reputation, not in their privileges, not in their position, not in their wisdom, not in their fellow flawed man, but put their trust solely in Jesus. My friend, this morning, are you resting in Jesus? Are you coming with your personal sin to a personal Savior who can save you from your sins and fully entrusting yourself to Him alone? This is not a co-op program you ever seen those bumper stickers? They're terrible. God is my co-pilot. <laughs> That's just blasphemous. <laughs> God is your pilot and you are nothing. God, Jesus, will save His people from their sins. It's not Jesus in you, Jesus in your works, Jesus in your tears, Jesus in your zeal. It's Jesus alone. He will save His people from their sins. But in case we've missed the significance of who He is, we get... Another statement here in verse 22 about God's great plan. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. We could park on this for another hour. I'm not going to do that. But I do want you to note two things about it. What God is producing in bringing this child in Mary's womb is not disconnected from His promises of old. He said a Savior would come, and He's here. But then who is the Savior? They shall call His name. Not just Joseph now. They, the people of God, shall call His name Emmanuel. Jesus has a legitimate or real humanity as those in the genealogy of Abraham, David, Joseph, and Mary. But the child is Emmanuel, God with us. God was with David in the past, but now God Himself, the Son of God, is here abiding with His people. This child is not a witness to the presence of God. He is the presence of God. God in human vesture. And as a man, He can represent us. And as God, He has the power to save us. All of our hope is in that truth. Finally, see with me a model. This is a very brief point. Model. Though Joseph has already served as a model to us, He's a contemplative, righteous, and compassionate man. Here we see, in closing, that he's an obedient man. Look at verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Two actions are highlighted. He was not afraid to take Mary as his wife. He, he took her. Who knows the social pressure? The family pressure. Your family ever press you to do things? The family pressure that may have been upon him not to take this woman to be his wife. I'm sure they didn't tell everyone the story. Who knows how many folks Joseph and Mary have let in on this whole angelic vision stuff. We're not told any of that. What we know is human nature is to believe the worst about people 
to be overly critical, to slander and revile. And in the future, in John 8, Jesus will be called by the Pharisees a son of sexual immorality. It's probably an insult that goes all the way back to this moment when Mary is viewed as though she's unfaithful. Joseph throws aside all the rumors, all the slanders, all the pressure to reject her, and he takes her and loves her. He was ready to obey at great cost. Are we ready to obey at great cost? Are we willing to do whatever the Lord would call us to do? Yeah, we aren't getting angelic visitors in our dreams. We don't need those. We have the Word of God. But are we being obedient? And then, as Joseph takes the child into his home, he names him Jesus, as he was told. Again, the boy's technically not his. Jesus has a human mother, and God is his father. But Joseph is ready to undertake the remarkable and frightening task, frankly, of raising the Savior. Like Mary highlighted in Luke 1, Joseph submitted to God. He, he pledged himself to serve the Lord. And yes, this little boy is the God-man, but this little boy has to be cared for. He has to be attended to with diligence because he has to grow up in wisdom and in stature. And Joseph did that. Brethren, our roles as obedient children are not so complicated. Can you imagine being the father, so it is supposed, of the perfect Son of God? Do you, do you even contemplate what that could be like? But Joseph, he does it. He's obedient. How could we fail to be obedient to the Lord who's willing to save His people from their sins? We should stand back from Matthew chapter 1 in awe, praising our God for His amazing grace. But further, pledging ourselves to live in His service. For how could we do anything more than simply give our lives to Him who gave His Son for us? Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank You for this wonderful gift of the Lord Jesus Christ that He will save His people from their sins. Lord, may we recognize our own sin this morning from which we need salvation. And Lord, would You help us to rest our hope not in our ability to do better, to start a new year with all the new year plans and resolutions, but simply to repose on Christ and to see that He is enough for us and then to give our lives in His service as a thank You forever. We ask this, O Lord, that You would do it in us by the power of Your Spirit. And we pray it all in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen.